Welcome to the 385th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live today from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Martha Greenwald, the founding director, creator, and curator of the Who We Lost Project. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 7th, 2021, there are 5,266,144 deaths globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of John Michael Johnny Peluso. It appeared in the Hartford Current. December 5th, 2021, and I want to acknowledge faces of COVID where this was placed on Twitter, on social media two days ago, and that's where I first read this obituary. John Michael Johnny Peluso, 73, beloved husband of Nancy J. Peluso, passed away on Thursday, December 3rd, 2021, from complications due to a breakthrough COVID-19 infection. Born July 26, 1948 in Hartford, he grew up in Glastonbury in West Hartford and was a 1966 graduate of A.I. Prince Technical High School where he was valedictorian and a member of the National Honor Society. John enlisted in the United States Army in 1967 in hopes of keeping his beloved brother from being drafted to Vietnam. He served in the 1st Battalion, 23rd Infantry Regiment at Camp Blue Lancer Valley in South Korea from 1968 to 1969, advancing in rank to Infantry Sergeant E-5. He earned an honorable discharge for meritorious service. Upon returning to the United States, he met the love of his life, Nancy O'Brien, and they settled in Windsor, where they have resided since 1971. A hardworking and dedicated father, he served as a valued member of the Plumbers and Pipefitters Union Local 777 for over 40 years. One of his proudest achievements was having designed and installed all of the medical and gas lines for the Connecticut Children's Medical Center and Hartford Hospital NICU floor, neonatal ICU floor, to which his grandson would eventually benefit upon his premature birth. John spent his life getting up early and doing intense physical labor in extreme heat and cold to ensure his family was always provided for. Never one to sit still, John loved spending time outdoors, especially on the golf course, and most recently served as the treasurer of the Tuesday Senior League and Wednesday K of C League. He enjoyed gardening, spending time at the beach on Cape Cod, and playing with his dogs. John was a sports lover and a lifelong Yankees fan, Giants fan, UConn basketball fan, and newly minted Liverpool fan. John was a giving person, 
and this was best exemplified by his consistent blood donations to the Red Cross from 1991 to 2015, where he donated 124 units and was able to save 372 lives. He was also an organ donor and was able to give his corneas, skin, and bone upon his death. He taught us many things in his life, the most important being the value of hard work, selflessness, humor, and standing up for those who couldn't stand up for themselves. The life of John Michael Johnny Peluso, who died on December 3rd from breakthrough infection of COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce you to my guest, Martha Greenwald. Martha Greenwald is the founding director, creator, and curator of the Who We Lost Project, which includes the websites whowelost.org and whowelostky.org. She's the author of the poetry collection Other Prohibited Items, which won the Mississippi Review Prize for Poetry. In 2020, she was the first prize winner of the Yates Poetry Award. Her poems have appeared in Poetry, Rattle, Nurture, Slate, Best New Poets, The Three Penny Review, and numerous other journals. She's been both a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford and a Pearl Hulgreave Fellow at Iowa State, and she taught creative writing, literature, and ESL at the high school and college level for nearly 20 years. She's working on another poetry collection now, a memoir called Shiva Bullies, and seeking a publisher for an anthology of stories from the Who We Lost Project. Martha Greenwald, thank you so much for making time to visit with me today on COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. I'm really honored to be here and talk about the project. Thank you. So, uh, and also congratulations on your uh, recent poetry award. We were chatting just before we started. Um, you're hoping yeah. to get a chance to go to New York to actually receive that award next year, right? I am. Hopefully things will be better and they can do that. I still have a lot of friends there from years ago and it will be really nice to do that. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and uh, what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. So I've come armed with statistics for you. I am um, calling from Louisville, Kentucky, and we have had so far 11,400 deaths from COVID in the state. Our positivity rate yesterday was 9.13%, and it's going up. And it was the highest case count they've had in nine weeks. And our vaccine rate is 72% for 18 years and over and 91% for 75 and over. Um, Kentucky is unique in that we have a Democratic governor in a primarily red state. And Governor Bashir has had a really um, active and compassionate COVID response. We had shutdowns very early and um, a very, very organized vaccine rollout. So there were mask mandates and everything was actually going pretty well. And then the um, state assembly took back his rights. So mask mandates and all those things are no longer possible, although there's strong recommendations all the time. Um, there's large divides between where there's vaccinated pockets and then the unvaccinated, which you've got Louisville and Lexington, which are heavily vaccinated and things are going really well versus more rural parts of the state. So it's, yeah. yeah, thank you for that snapshot. And 72% uh, 
and that would put Kentucky higher than other red states. And I, <clears throat> I don't like to usually think about those statistics as red or blue, but I mean, honestly, that's, you know, we look at the, at right. the trends now, there's a very strong correlation, but in a state with divided government, I mean, those are ones I think we're going to really look at in the future. Um, you know, Maryland, you know, states that either had a, a democratic legislature and a Republican governor or vice versa, like what you have in Kentucky. And I think we're going to need to take a close look at those at those states because um, they've certainly done yeah. better than states that have um, uh, complete Republican governance. Yeah. And also, um, I mean, the governor's has made a real effort to do at the they don't do it every day anymore, but it for a large part of the pandemic, there were daily press conferences. There was always memorials at each of them of someone who had died. And also, I recently attended a ceremony at the state capitol where they were um, announcing the commission for a state COVID permanent memorial on the capitol grounds. Mm. And I was one of the people on the advisory panel for that. So there is a you know continued effort made on his part to be you know c compassionate and to encourage vaccination and memorialization. So. It's um, it's it's really admirable, actually, what he's done. I guess the question will be whether or not the COVID is an issue at all when he stands for for re-election, or if it's it's yeah. forgotten by that point, uh, not forgotten by people who are actually saving lives or trying to remember those lives, like you are. But I, I was right. I was pretty stunned by the Virginia uh, governor's race that COVID seemed to just almost drop out of conversation except for the angriest you know who, yeah. who felt that the governor had saved lives mm -hmm. beyond his uh legal authority to do so um I, I wonder if i could ask you to we're going to talk a lot about memory today but yeah. i wanted to sort of talk to you first about memory and and see if you would share maybe a memory of yours of this time and i know it's kind of an impossible task but i wonder something that really sticks with you really resonates about this time mm -hmm. so i thought about this because I do watch all the time and I knew I was going to answer this question. And then I realized that there was an obvious answer to me because it was almost exactly a year ago today that my brother's whole family um, all became ill with COVID. And so this was in Boston and my nephew brought it home. He was working at a law firm. And when my brother got it, um, he was the only one that wound up having to go his oxygen levels dropped one night and he, he did wind up going to the ER. And so my nephew who turned out did not get very ill from it, um, which he hypothesized was because he was already on a drug that's contained in remdesivir. Um, that's the only reason we can think of. He didn't get that sick. So he drove my brother and I was getting texts at four in the morning that um, on the way home, they, they actually released him from the ER but on the way home, there was a snowstorm and the car was shoved off the road by a snowplow on the Mass Pike. So the cops <laughs> eventually came to try to get them out of the snowbank. And because they were so ill, they wanted to um, test my nephew and my brother for sobriety, at which point my nephew had to like leap out of the car and say like, stay back. We have COVID. It's not, we're not drunk, you know? So 
throughout that whole period of like wondering how my brother is. And I know from other episodes of yours that many people have described the same feeling of being far away from your relatives and knowing you can't really do anything for them. And I kept thinking about my brother's asthmatic childhood and all the nights of my mother in the bathroom with the steam going for him, you know, in 1970s before there were better asthma drugs than there are now. And just being worried the whole time and knowing I couldn't do anything for them, just checking my phone constantly and being worried. And um, that's one of my more personal memories of all of this. So did he, did he make a recovery? He has, he did. He has some long haul symptoms. He has severe insomnia now, actually. Hmm. Um, The rest of the family, they, they've all recovered. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I can only imagine the way you even described those waiting for the text message to come up on the screen is excruciating. There's also some dark humor in the description of your nephew having to jump out and sort of (laughs) explain to the police, we're not drunk, we're just really sick with a pandemic disease. It's something not to make light of it, but looking for those moments that are so absurd in all of this. Well, you have to, right? Because I mean, what, what else can you do? That's a big part of it is that bizarre absurdity. So, yeah. So I want to talk uh, about your project, Who We Lost, okay. but I, I want to maybe go a little before that. And, and particularly when I talk to writers and artists, are there some fascinations that you've had, some particular maybe projects in your past, something that's particularly attuned you um, to grief, to memory, to the kinds of issues that um, you're now addressing in the Who We Lost Memorial Project, things that had already sort of been circulating yeah. in your creativity that are now been really brought to bear? So I did not understand this when I first started the project, but it's become increasingly evident to me that there is a yes to your question, which is in the beginning, you said that I was working on Shiva bullies. And if I'm honest, that's something I've been trying to write for the last 10 years. Um, 11 years ago, my father was killed and he was an optometrist and he was killed by um, a driver. He was out taking a walk. He was killed by a driver who we subsequently found out had no peripheral vision because of brain tumors that he didn't know he had the driver. So, so my father, the optometrist was killed by somebody with no peripheral vision and he had spent, you know, his whole career. He was a very, um, you know, ardent optometrist who always looked for, you know, he would, find brain tumors sometimes in in the process of doing an exam. And my father had remarried and had a second family after my mother died who um, we didn't get along with. And they were, they are very, very difficult people. And they made the process of what happened after he died into a sort of hellish nightmare that um, included at the first Shiva after my father's funeral violence and the police being called. And so my family, my family all had to retreat from the scene and a lot of things happened after that, which I'm describing 
in the book. Um, but what it resulted in that, you know, has affected me ever since then and probably has morphed into this project is the whole idea of repressed grief. Because what happened, we weren't really allowed, we weren't allowed to have that shiva or any of those sort of traditional Jewish, you know, practices of mourning. Not that that part would have been that important to me, but just the idea of appropriate mourning was taken from us because of there were lawyers and, you know, police reports, both regarding the accident itself and then this, you know, other part of the his life that, you know, nobody knew that that was going to happen. So I think that it's taken me a while to understand this, but I think that when my ideas for this project started to come into being, I really think it it's derived from that part of my life. And that part of my brain's really been turned on. I don't mean turned on as a term, but has been switched on uh, as a result of the pandemic, honestly. So it that's comes a, from, that's where it comes from me it took me a while to put it all together but a lot of the like themes and motifs that i see in stories that come into the site ones that will like really really you know get to me and make me cry or upset me almost always relate to that idea of not being able to say goodbye to someone well that's that's an important story from your life to share and i really appreciate that yeah. and and did you write your father's obituary at the time? Um, I do. I wrote a eulogy that I did say at his funeral. Yeah, I honestly cannot remember if I wrote what was in the newspaper or not. I suspect I didn't somehow. Um, but I did write a eulogy that I did speak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't have anything quite like that. Certainly not as as uh, poignant as as that, but I I would share that, um, and I've said this before. Early on in the pandemic, I spent a lot of time grieving for my grandparents, mm -hmm. and I did had no idea why. And I would be, and I remember this very clearly. The first time I went to the grocery store after the lockdown, in the middle of the lockdown, when we were everybody was hypersensitized to everything, and you know washing their vegetables and everything, and there was this sort of performance of like pandemic diligence going on. And yeah. I just remember getting back home and sitting in the car and just going through this set of very powerful memories and fear for my grandparents. And, but they had been dead. I mean, they were dead, uh -huh. but they were, they had that whole, and it, so it, it, I have never, haven't talked about this in a while. Um, really it's coming back from your, your story, but that there were some things there that still needed to be thought about and processed, or maybe they need to be once in a while. I don't know, mm -hmm. but there's something about the pandemic and the uncertainty yeah. and the fear of that brought it back in a really powerful way, which I have come to see now as blessing of sorts, but at mm -hmm. the time it scared me. Yeah, I completely understand that actually. And on, like, also that goes along with all the strange dreams people were having in the beginning of it. That phenomena was being described a lot. I think it's all part of that. So you bringing out a lot of weird stuff in us. It, it is. So, so yeah. then you you switched into. Um, so, so let's talk about this project. I mean, the, who we okay. lost. So when did you get the idea? How early did you start working on it? I mean, it has such unique 
there's a lot of memorial projects out there, they, and I'm really glad about that. Yours is, is quite special. I mean, there's some characteristics to it which are, make it quite unique. So how did you get started with this? Okay, so about 16 or 17 months ago at one of the, um, at one of Governor Bashir's press conferences, they would often, I mean, I know a lot of states did this, but we, he fairly religiously had the, um, the commissioner of the department, I go for public health, um, come on and discuss all the medical angles, which is Dr. Stephen Stack. And he's a really interesting character. He's not, you know, kind of like the archetypal doctor who walks on. He's He's got like a whole other side to himself. It's kind of fascinating. And he um, decided one day to give a writing assignment to Kentucky. So he asked for everyone to mail him snail mail he was quite specific that it couldn't be email, it couldn't be uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. He wanted none of that. He wanted mail. And so um, I don't, I can't really explain it. I was sitting like outside and writing and I just heard it and a lightning bolt just sort of went off in my head um, that Kentucky was getting a writing assignment and I, I loved it. I just love the idea of it after having taught as long as I did. And I um, wrote them a letter. I, I, I participated in the snail mail and I had this idea. And then eventually it sort of morphed and evolved. Um, he did write back to me actually in, in a handwritten note um, and said that he didn't really have time for it, but he thought it was, you know, cause they were busy trying to save everyone's lives. Um, but I decided that I was just gonna do this. Anyway, I felt a compulsion that I haven't really felt in a lot of years for a project that it just, I just knew I had to do this. It's a really weird feeling. Um, and I feel like a lot of parts of me have come together, like the part that taught all those years and the poet part and then, you know, other aspects, which I guess we'll talk to when we get to the aesthetics part of it. But um, I was somebody who studied art history and was going to do graduate school and that, like that came back to me and I just wanted to help. There was a lot of um, narcissism in the poetry community, in my opinion, that, you know, I wasn't seeing anything other than people post, you know, poems about, oh, I went to the supermarket and I couldn't get what I wanted or social isolation so hard on me. And it just struck me as very solipsistic and I, w I wanted to do something else. So that's sort of the initial part of the idea. Then I started the Kentucky site and I bought all my domains and somehow was lucky enough to get who we lost, which is a pretty rocking domain if I do say so. And um, I started work on the Kentucky one, and then eventually there was enough requests for people who would say, but, but I live in Indiana or I'm in California. I want to write a story. What about me? So I decided to just go for it and do the national too. Yeah. So uh, I, I love your, <laughs> I love the way you describe that Kentucky got a writing assignment and, yeah. and that's, and as a writing teacher, that's not a moment to, to take lightly. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, as you started, like maybe just say a little bit about the logistics of it. You know, so you set up the site. Yeah. How did, how did you close the loop then in terms of bringing back, you know, maybe, I don't know if you tried to bring state officials 
back into it in your conversation or, you know, how you kind of got the word out. I'm always interested this, of the many memorial projects that are out there, um, you know, particularly early in the pandemic, there was, I think it might've been hard for people to find projects like this. Mm-hmm. You know, that there were the big newspaper obituary uh, feeds going on. Um, but the projects, much more organic projects like yours may have been harder to locate. Um, well, I, we are not supported by the state, by the way, I'm still waiting for a 501c3 so that we can look for, you know, grant and funding. Um, I was put in touch with somebody who it turned out to just be a very serendipitous thing that we knew some of the same people for completely other reasons. And so I was advised by this person, um, behind the scenes and then it was communicated to the um, social media team, which then they, they became aware of it for the state. And so they, the governor's office did tweet about it. And it was on Facebook stories and Instagram stories and a couple of other things. But then getting the word out for the rest of it, I really just pushed really hard getting, you know, contacting me- media and um, TV stations Lexington, Kentucky has been the most fruitful on that. Their TV stations were really receptive. Um, Some in Appalachia, a reporter there. And then eventually over the summer, it was picked up by NPR and then it went on national NPR. So that was a huge, you know, boost for it. A lot of that's how I discovered you. I think that NPR story is when I discovered your work. Uh huh. Yeah, it was on here and now. Yeah. So that's how I got it out there. Um, maybe this would be a good moment to, first of all, let me remind everybody you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Martha Greenwald today, the creator of the Who We Lost websites, Who We Lost and Who We Lost Kentucky. Um, this might be a good moment to read one, and then we could talk about what makes these uh, narratives, these stories different from other kinds of memorial okay. writing. Mm-hmm. Um well, there's two kinds of stories on the site. So there's there's ones where someone has lost someone directly to COVID, and that w- and then what I also started to realize that people were craving um, a space to tell stories of people who had sort of COVID adjacent deaths, which is a very neglected topic. People who died in nursing homes, perhaps due to accelerated Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, those stories and um, people who died of neglect, all that. So I do accept those stories also on there because they are all related to to the pandemic. So um, well, I'll start with one that's that is a COVID direct story, though. Um, this one's going to be on the radio on our radio show, I believe, next week. It's by Amanda Phelps, and she lost her dad, whose name was Joseph Vise. And the title is My Dad, 
my hero. My dad, who loved to golf, loved Kentucky basketball, often went deer hunting, but never took his gun, retired from Ford Motor Company, the best father, husband, and grandfather anyone could ask for. You need something, take his, and he would get it. You need some help with something, give him and some time, and you paid with a hot breakfast. He was the epitome of what a dad truly was. When I moved to Texas with two children to meet my husband for a job change, he drove 25 hours with me, moved me in, and would only fly back to Kentucky when my husband was there, and he knew we were safe and sound. The hardest worker, yet you could always find him napping while watching Gunsmoke on most days, the perks of retirement, he would say. COVID took him from us. He first was sick November 24th, 2020, only gastrointestinal issues. We suspected COVID, but he wasn't that sick. Went to the ER, sent home with a modium. Four days later, I had to call 911 as his O2 was below 70. Straight to Jewish hospital, he tried and fought for a week to stay off the vent. He was so scared and alone. I will never be able to thank the nurses who were there when we couldn't be. December 10th, he was placed on the vent. It never helped. He went downhill fast, and the early morning of December 18th, his deceased mother's 95th birthday, we watched via a Zoom call as his machines were turned off, the vent stopped, and the moment he took his last breath. Thank God for the nurse who held his hand. My nieces were allowed to be there as they both are nurses in Louisville. They gently spoke to him as he transitioned to heaven. No more pain, struggle, or earthly sorrow. It has been 147 days. I miss him so much, but take comfort in knowing I will see him again. Dad, we can never tell you how much you are loved and missed until we meet again. And the reason I chose that story is because that phenomena of seeing someone through an iPad or an iPhone for the last time is something that, you know, comes up in these stories over and over. And for me personally, it, it, I find it to be one of the most um, heartbreaking aspects of COVID death is that the dying on an iPad, you know? So that's, that's a really moving yeah. story obviously they they all are yeah it's um it seems that these and uh, i was reading one this morning um i think it's a relatively recent one um that appeared so they read them i guess on uh wuky yeah this one was about an art teacher named matt cockrell yes and uh, mr c and I'm, yeah. even I'll just read the first paragraph of it, but it says, uh, Matt, Mr. C. Cockrell was not a typical high school teacher. It made sense that the halls around his class and the art wing of Martha Lane Collins High School weren't typical either. And and it goes on to describe him yeah. and, and how he was loved, but with details that um, just give you a lot of insight into the person and into the community too. And And it made me think, you know, how how had you, my question, how had you approached trying to um, allow people to write in this way and, and, and encourage them? I mean, I know you're not like editing every single entry that comes in, but there's something about the tone of the site 
and the language that you use to encourage people to write and the examples that you give, which is resulting in different kinds of, of COVID stories from, from what I think we've seen in the newspapers. Um, well, the Matt, uh, I have a general and a specific answer. So the Matt Cockrell story is written by a reporting student at Western Kentucky University. I collaborated with a professor there to have st um, students write a story in their classes. So that's by a student. Um, Dan, Dan Collins, just to acknowledge Dan uh, Collins' work. On that's it, yeah. Michael, Michael, yeah, that one, Michael Collins. Oh, okay. um, and then in general, thank you for noticing what you're saying about the site, because that was really part of my whole vision for it, is that I wanted through the images on the site to, instead of sort of be instructing and saying, you know, do it this way and be like the mean old writing teacher, I wanted to really show and not tell. So a lot of the small typewritten images on the site that you see that um, are the torn paper, um, to me, those are like micro micro stories that try, try to choose things that encapsulate a scene or a whole person within those sort of snippets of a life. So by having that and then just how things look and not having people's pictures um, and not using any stock images and, you know, no Getty shots of ventilators and, um, you know, generic elderly people, I want people to really be able to imagine their own loved ones in there and not be confronted with common things that you're going to see elsewhere all the time. So I try to do it through the visuals and then the, the small pieces of paper and then um, the mood of what I'm trying to convey on a website by the choice of, of the art and um, the things that go with it. Let, let me just follow up specifically about the the images and yeah. rejecting having stock images. Um, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I, and because there's only a limited amount of attention people have. And, and right. I find this really important. Like you don't get people's attention long, even people who are grieving for their own loved ones, maybe. And yeah. so every detail kind of really needs to bring them back, I think, yeah, to that life. Uh, why why not include pictures though of the loved ones themselves that's an interesting choice um well for the stories that people are submitting um on a practical level i just don't i didn't have the the web capacity um and frankly knowledge to have that as part of the submissions and I thought it um, that might happen later on once we get, you know, funded for this project. But for now, I just really wanted to keep it the emphasis on the words so that, you know, whenever someone got in there to look, they would imagine what they could do instead of being confronted with someone else's face. Um, an important part of it for me with the stories is that it, you need a title to submit so that there's there's you know name name of person who's deceased and the story but i ask everyone to title everything and i feel like that gives them a frame so that they understand no matter what 
However, how it turns out, this is a story. You don't have to be a great writer to send anything in. It's just put a title on it. And, you know, I've found that there's no one who can't do it. Every single person has come up with a good title. That that story that you've got right on there now, that's a new one. And that's that story is just gorgeous. It's so beautiful. Um, um. I'm just moving for those who are uh, who are watching. Uh, if you're listening, you're not seeing this, but we're moving through um, some of the uh, who we lost Kentucky website, yeah, um, which is who we lost ky.org, and you can check it out. If those who are watching, you can see it's just what um, you're talking about, Martha. The 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 titles, um, like it just happened yesterday, which is a story about Laverne. Terry, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I just wanted okay. to draw attention to what we're looking at. Yeah. And and just to go back, um, I'm just going to move back one screen because the visual look of it as well. Um, I mean, these are, to me, I mean, it's an Edward Hopper sort of, to this as well, some of the imagery, um, which I don't know if that's intentional or unintentional, but the look of it, um, there's a spareness to it as well. It made me think of Edward Hopper's work and this sort of like economy of words, like every word really needs to count in in this kind of in this kind of work. That is precisely what I was aiming for. So thank you for saying that. I actually like to think of the site as if. Edward Hopper, Joseph Cornell, and Elizabeth Bishop's poem One Art got like married into a COVID website. That's what I, it is. <laughs> wow. Well, I think I saw the Hopper in there. I'm glad I got part of that. I'm glad I yeah. got part of that right. Um, yeah. Let me just remind everyone that I'm talking to Martha Greenwald today uh, on COVID calls, and we're talking about the Who We Lost project, Who We Lost, and Who We Lost Kentucky. And um, so just a little bit more of the history of the project. So you said, you know, you got to the point where, I mean, people are sending you a lot of these. Yeah. So how have you maintained the, um, I mean, I see how you built the momentum and how have you maintained it and what kinds of things did you elaborate? I mean, I know you've, um, you know, been fostering, uh, you know, projects like the writing toolbox that's offered here, yeah. um, tools that allow people to actually, you know, you know, do take this, work with it, and actually contribute. I mean, mm -hmm. people need to understand that as projects like this grow, um, it doesn't just happen all at once. I mean, there's an iteration that goes on, and it's an enormous amount yeah. of labor on your part. So talk a little bit about the building phase. So I do work on it constantly. You are, you are correct. Um, I did have the toolbox on there from the from the beginning. I've refined it and improved it since the beginning, but it was always clear to me that that needed to be there because so many people are writing hesitant or they feel they don't have the ability or maybe in some cases they physically cannot. Um, so the toolbox was there to kind of give ideas and um, you can print out PDFs for it that will help you maybe if you don't want to look at the screen or you want to take it elsewhere. Um, I do encourage people to sort of handwrite if they can in the beginning of it. Um, momentum wise, it's really been a matter of getting, you know, 
the media interested so that more people know about it that i've found as soon as somebody knows that's when they go and and do it so a lot of it's about getting the word out and then also the places that we're expanded with um you already already mentioned wuky and so that's lexington public radio and um really grateful that they've taken this on. Our producer is Dan Collins and the um, station manager is Alan, Alan Lytle. And I just love working on the series. We give a voice to the stories so that they're heard on Saturday mornings. Um, some of the writers have read their own and some don't want to because they feel they can't get through it without being too upset or they say they don't like their voice or something like that. So we have friends and in a few cases actors have voiced the stories um and then also working with the students at wku in the journalism school and also i'm teaching classes at the carnegie center in lexington which have been on zoom so far helping people write the stories so actually you don't have to be in kentucky to do that at all and then a new partnership is coming up that i'm really really grateful for with Apple Shop. I don't know if you know, we're in uh, Whitesburg, Kentucky. So we'll be telling stories from the Appalachian region of people whose voices are often unheard. Um, that will be radio and also uh, stories for the site, both. Is there some um, particular cultural heritage of Appalachia that makes this uh, kind of a project more possible there? I mean, I know you're doing, you're not focused. You have two sites. You have one yeah. focused on Kentucky and one, mm-hmm. one beyond. But right. um, I do wonder, I mean, my own sort of knowledge of you know, writing and poetry and particularly music that comes from that region. It is a region with a rich storytelling tradition. I mean, every part of America has that, but I particularly yeah. think of Appalachia in that way. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it it's primed to do this. So and, and Apple Shop has a rich tradition of telling those stories already but this will just sort of be an extension into the you know remembering people who have died there that story that you had on the screen of laverne terry is coming from that uh region and um it's it's really beautiful story so it i think it's going to really turn out well that that aspect of it of the project you, um, I asked, and you very kindly agreed that you would share some of your own work. I mean, you're sharing your work here, but some of your own poetry yeah. uh, today. Uh, maybe this is a good time to to turn to that. I have sure. some other questions about your project, but I wanted to okay. to see if you might share some of your own creative work as well. Okay. Am I reading one or both now? Um, why don't we read one now and then let's do one in a, in a few minutes as we get close okay. to the end. Is that okay? Sure. Um, I want to okay. show, I want to do a show and tell first. Some of the, you were asking me about the images from the site and this sort of kind of relates to this poem. So this is a, um, I don't know if you can see it, but it's a um, Victorian morning locket. Oops, sorry. All right. Out of there. I, okay. There it is. And I, some of the images for the site, as well as on social media, I take um, small pieces of paper and put them in here and then photograph it. I already had an interest in uh, morning jewelry and morning lockets prior to the pandemic, but it occurred to me at some point, um, 
I should be using these to make images to give some history and authenticity to the idea of words and memory. Usually the lockets would have held photographs, um, but sometimes they also did hold messages. So I've been photographing and using using those to try to add to what you were saying about the you know idea of, um, I mean, Hopper's post-Victorian, but using history and ideas of isolation you know, from the past. I mean, they had these in Edwardian times too. So I could imagine someone during 1918 walking around with one of these with, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. So that's just kind of something I infuse into it. I like to add historical references to mourning also. That's, uh, thank you for showing that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I wonder, you know, the, so much of what's been produced in this time is is digital as and i like that because it can travel around the world quickly it can influence people but i really do worry about the absence of crafts maybe they're out there i haven't seen them because we haven't been able to go to museums or share them with each other that's why right. i really like um heather schulte's project stitching the situation i don't know if you've seen that one but mm -hmm. i mean it's a it's a collaborative stitching project and yeah. it's, it's leaving behind material artifacts that i could imagine 100 years from now someone showing just the way you you did making of yeah. jewelry and those kinds of things super important i uh, wish we had more of that right now yeah i agree with you i'm gonna read um a poem that is called other prohibited items it was the title poem for my book and it it really is a post 9 11 kind of poem but it suddenly has become really relevant again and it relates to the second poem i'm gonna read which is a pandemic poem Okay, Martha Greenwald reading other prohibited yeah. items on COVID calls. I'm gonna get out of the way and, and it's all yours. Okay. Um, this poem starts with an epigraph that at the time was on South, that I wrote it was on southwest.com carry on tips. And the epigraph is try not to overthink these guidelines. Other prohibited items. No to his bassoon and no to their cricket bat, no to your robot, her corkscrew, that hatchet. Good traveler whose children might be overjoyed. Next trip, please procure toys that resemble toys. Policy does not ban pink princess pirate swords, but for security, we confiscate all backstories, though adaptations are few. Item, one wrench from a beloved uncle's workbench, pilfered after his funeral, just before the flight. Lost thanks for his kindnesses, the raucous Christmas pranks. Although he taught his nephew the lathe, relinquished the memento at our checkpoint. Item, rose oil, decanted by monks, four ounces in a faceted flasson. Rare, the passenger whispers, hushed, as if pleading to the lover for whom the secret gift was intended. Well, her kiss may be sublime, but no to the perfume's ounce of excess, and no to the antique draw knife, despite its moonstone handle studded with marcasite. Again, mid-shift, a woman about to board a red eye puts her Ziploc on the x-ray conveyor, then flusters when we screen the bag's contents. The bottles warm our gloved hands. 
milk rivulets dampen our sleeves. However, her infant waits at the destination. So toss her bottles to the take bin, fore milk already separating from hind milk. No to her umbrella, unruly, floral. Sorry, storm phobias never justify hollow finials. No exceptions for the sentimental or exceptional. Our take bins swell with keepsakes, decades misplaced, with longings for the heft of a snow globe balanced on a small palm. Look inside, old Snow White sleeps in a dubious solution. No to her domed skies at blizzard, no to the castle, no to apples, which is lurk in these woods and every poisoned pie is gooseberry. That was uh, other <laughs> prohibited items by Martha Greenwald. Uh, and so just taking a second to let that, that set in and maybe first, I don't want to ask you to explain it maybe <laughs> in detail, but, mm -hmm. but, um, but it sets a, I mean, what a remarkable tone also of this time in which there's a sort of set of authorities and then there's the rest of us trying to figure out what the rules are. Right. And that, that really kind of, kind of strikes me. And I, as you said, it's a post 9-11 poem. How do you, when you think about the connection of that time and this time, mm -hmm. and maybe with this poem as a bridge, how do you see that? Um, well, since 9-11, this is our largest, I mean, obviously it's our largest crisis. So I think that it awakens a lot of the same feelings in people from then to now of chaos and not understanding what's going on and not knowing where things are coming from or how they're going to be resolved. There seems to be a lot of um, shared trauma, I think, between the two times that, you know, really resonate off each other. So it seems highly related to me. Also the sort of sense of unknowing and the, the other, which in one case was terrorists, but now it's virus. Yeah. The lines in there, I mean, there was a line in there. It said no exceptions for the sentimental. Yeah. That's where you get tossed out of line, right, Martha? Right. Yeah. You get tossed out of the line because you have something you can't take on board. So, yeah. Yeah. But the the other thing that that poem make me think about is the the room that must exist and where all those things get left. Right. And thinking about the own my other things that I had to leave from time to time, including mm -hmm. once a, a quite yeah. treasured bottle of olive oil that I thought I was being very clever bringing back from an exotic place for a family member who <laughs> loves to cook. And I yeah. remember the look in the guy's face, and he was like. He's just I, to him. I was the stupidest person in the planet. Like, why had I thought I was going to bring this bottle of olive oil on this plane? Uh, he was like, no, mm -mm. no. But it, there's mm -hmm. a museum of those objects in my mind. There is a reality. Yeah. I must go into a garbage bin. In my mind, though, it's an alternative right. material history of people's travel throughout this time. Yeah. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you been writing during this time, in addition to? The memorial project have you has the project been an inspiration to you to write or are you too exhausted um i have written some 
poems. I wrote several prior to kicking off the project. So like in the first months of the pandemic, since then, since I've really launched it in a serious way, I finished maybe, I finished maybe two. I have the beginnings of several poems um, that I do think come out of the whole experience. And so I'm, you know, I'm trying to make time to get back into them. But I write so much stuff for the site and constantly having to update social media. It takes a lot. It's a lot of time. Yeah. I'm quite hopeful that this is a time in which words will, words which have been under assault in our society might be making a comeback, particularly memorial words and thoughtful words. And so. I know you must believe that at some level because you've committed yourself yeah. to this. I have, project, yeah. but, but you're helping people write, write. That's not a skill. If you if you take if you have the courage to write something about a loved one, that courage, I think, I hope, doesn't go away the next time you need to write about something hard in your life. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, when I taught um, on those, you know, pesky student evaluations, which I know you know what I'm talking about. Um, I never, you know, one of the things that was usually said was that I was good at um, helping people figure out what they wanted to say. So I never tried to be didactic in assignments, but I, you know, that was my thing was I could help you figure out what to write. So that part of me has come into this project as, you know, in a major way. And you're finding yourself collaborating with other memorial projects at this time as well? Um. A little bit, yeah. I am working somewhat with Rima Saman um, of Rami's Heart Memorial. We're going to be working on helping people tell stories at the holidays, which there's a very difficult holiday season coming up for many people. So I've added a special about holidays part to the um, writing toolbox that suggests writing stories as a group. So for we're hoping that um, I'm hoping in general that people will use that part of the site. Um, you know, appoint like a scribe in the family to mm. get a couple sentences from each person at the table, and then write that story together. Maybe it's too hard to do it by yourself. For many people, it is. It's too painful. But when you're doing it with others about who's missing from the table, it's um, it can be very helpful. This. Um really this insistence that you have in this project that the writing be done by the friends and the loved ones yeah. of the deceased is an important one. It, it is not the convention of obituary writing, right. which is done by professional journalists. It, do you see some, some tension there, uh, just different approaches? What's the advantage or disadvantage of having it written by the loved one? Well, as you know, there were so many people who couldn't, I mean, most people who lost someone during this period could not have a funeral or memorial service, wake, visitation, shiva, whatever, whatever it is that you were going to have, it didn't exist. So a lot of things were left unsaid. So stories about people that they couldn't tell when they maybe came and they wanted to say something to someone else and tell them, hey, I remember this time that we did this or, you know, my favorite thing to remember about them is whatever it is uh, that was taken away from people. 
It's just, it vanished. So I feel like if they're writing it themselves, they're going to be able to say the things that were unsaid, that have been left unsaid. Just want to give people a quick reminder. You're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Martha Greenwell today, the creator of the Who We Lost project. And we had uh, said that we could make some time for you to read a second poem. Would this be? Sure. Okay to do now? Uh-huh. I did want to um, add to what you just said that I, when you asked me about my origins earlier for how this all got started, um, I neglected to say that my first job, one of my first jobs uh, during the summers in between college um, was writing obituaries. So oh. it seems significant that I mentioned that. So, <laughs> so you've done that too. Okay. You were, you were holding out on me. Uh, well, I, I, for, I have a lot, you know, I, yeah. yeah, at the Red Bank Daily Register in Red Bank, New Jersey. So no kidding. Um, no, now absorbed by the Asbury Park Press, but I wrote a lot of obits. So I have the street cred on this. Yeah. <laughs> Did you find that hard? It was really hard. Um, I mean, this is, you know, in in the eighties and um, we were, we were working on pretty primitive computers and I would take calls. All the funeral home directors would call at like 11 o'clock at night. So I worked very late hours. And I like my parents would pick me up at like 2 AM from the, the dark lot of the Red Bank Daily Register. Yeah, it was hard. <laughs> when when the, I worked at the New York Times for a little while, I was on the Metro desk and I was a clerk and, uh, Occasionally, they would uh, send me over to the morgue in those days to, because they had physical wow. clippings from old newspapers. And I'll never forget the first time they sent me over to pull some stuff for an obituary. Uh. And um, I was stunned to learn that there's a huge number of people for which the Times, and I assume most other new newspapers, have already started obituaries. It did, and of wow. course, it's so sensible, like for a president or some, for a former president. But I've thought about that a lot over the years, that the obituary writing doesn't start when someone's dead. The obituary writing is part of life. I mean, drawing that 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 hard line between the kind of letters and things you write yeah. about a person to a person or with them while they're alive and after they're dead, um, that line shouldn't be so distinct. So you, you've done that kind of writing too. It's really phenomenal. Yeah. Long, I thought about that a lot the other day when Stephen Sondheim died and the obits were there, like, you know, like They're that. They were, they were written. They're all yeah. written. Absolutely. Yeah. And so let me give you a chance to, to read again. I'll remove myself from the screen and give it to you. Okay. Um, this poem is uh, inspired by um, when you get some spam and it's specifically spam during the pandemic. And it's called Magic 121% N19 Novastar Mask Offer. Dear gentle American friend, not too much long ago, I was a beloved prince, but now I am humbled, a kind doctor, diplomatic, and I've tried to reach you for months to convince US airport authority that I can cure this pandemic. For I possess stockpiles of uncontaminated N19 masks, Nova Stars, triple ply, valved, certified, gold-plated, 
but my crates remain at U.S. Airport Authority, Nebraska, requiring legal backup papers to be verified, then dated. I cannot deliver any freight till international permit fees are paid, which levied $300 U.S., which is a small cost given our supreme copper-infused cloth of magic quality woven by grieving women, their kidnapped daughters lost. God asks, who will help? Orphanages in disrepair await. Once the warehouse pallets go released, I'll travel to heal children's health, fill their sad stomachs and empty plates, grip and melancholia prevented, thanks to a modest deal which you are here offered. Pray listen, dearest friend, to a secret medical secret. Nova stars banish the worst and wildest virus dreams. Three for $50, all nightmares end. God comprehends. We weary of our mother's ghosts, our father's devils, dead lovers, and your sister stillborn who calls to us. However, Nova Star masks will usher such spirits away respectfully, so you may waken, mourn, then proceed through today protected by safe fabric fibers which filter 100% bad thoughts. Sewn seams expel disease when you exhale, but you'll inhale clean air and memories. Somewhere at the back of your tired head, songs that tease and names you can never remember return like miracles. Thus, N19s, antibacterial, repel most airborne particles, which is why God asked me to share his nanotechnology with good people. But first, I must pay legal backup papers. We're all sicken again in prison, where life is dangerous lonely. While I wait, I live in fields beside U.S. Nebraska Airport. But do not worry. In the terminal atrium, I found a yellow baby blanket that still smells of baby. It brings comfort. Runway C is peaceful by night. At dawn, tall grass glows greener than anyone might imagine. The color of peridots, which are mined in my country. I could send you gems with N19 masks if Honorable Ambassador Z lifts embargoes, if I receive cash funds via UN World Bank MoneyGram, if you hurry payments which will be promptly blessed, your dark dreams will thank you, your germs, your breath, with immediately effect. Once you confirm this message, I'll enter the warehouse again with love and happiness. Best regards, Honorable Dr. Francois Smith. Arthur Greenwald reading recent uh, writing. <laughs> uh, what's the title of this one, Martha? Magic 120% N19 Novastar mask offer. Tremendous. Thank you for reading that. You're welcome. That is my, that is a, <laughs> that's a pandemic poem, right? How, how much of that actually landed in your inbox? So some of the phrases um, was like U.S. Nebraska Airport and World Bank MoneyGram. And uh, there was a mask offer, actually. I just kind of combined a lot of ideas and then wound up doing it and in, in uh i decided to go with, with a heavy rhyme scheme because i thought it was a way to counteract all the like odd language that yeah was there I would, so I would, 
I, as you were reading, I was thinking of Don DeLillo's book, White Noise, and the way he starts each one of each of the chapters in White Noise. I don't know if you remember that book, but it's like yeah. advertising, you know, just pulled from just pulled from mm -hmm. you know, print and radio and TV advertising copy. Uh, and it's so, so jarring, but then it offers the opportunity for somebody like yourself who really likes to work with words. Yeah. To find stories in there. I mean, I really like the line, the part of a line where you say, I could send you gems with N19 masks. Yeah. It's like, that, who does? I, I want that. Like there's yeah. a, there's a degree to which those, those emails are come to us because they work on yeah. 1% of the population. Right. <laughs> be me. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great poem. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> So we're almost up on time, but I, mm -hmm. I wanted to, um, there was one thing in our correspondence, there's a, a phrase that you introduced me to that I had not seen before that uh -huh. I wonder if you could discuss. And it's, the phrase is grief disenfranchisement. Yes. And I meant to ask you about it earlier when you were talking about distance and your own experience of distance from, from loved ones who are suffering Mm -hmm. And that is a theme through the site. And I think that might be a clue to what you're talking about here. But can you talk yeah. a little bit about grief disenfranchisement? Sure. So grief disenfranchisement is when a mourner doesn't feel they have the right to fully express um, their feelings or their um, grief because of cultural stigma about how a person died. So this is a very big part of um, why I made the website, actually. Um because there are many people who live in families where there's COVID denial or virus denial, or um, just for whatever political reasons, disinformation, that they do not feel they have um, a right to talk about the fact that their loved one died from COVID. There's a several articles I've read about people requesting that it not appear on death certificates. Um, there's, you know, huge problems online with posting stories uh, where people feel they're going to get comments like, you know, regarding the comorbidities or the fact that, you know, they'll say like, well, they were old anyway, or, oh, they were fat or they had diabetes. There's just this sort of poo-pooing of the actual reason that they died, which is, which is COVID. So one of my big things about the site that I was... Um, I'm insistent on is that there will never be any commenting allowed. You write your story and that's it. You you said what you want to say. No one can take that away from you. No one can make a nasty comment about the fact that they were fat and old. You know, none of that, none of that on my site. It's you tell the story. That's it. So hopefully that helps people who do have this disenfranchisement. Um, which is a big problem. There's secret grieving groups even where people fear that people will know that, you know, with, with secret locations that I've read about, um, they don't want to be known. They don't want to be known where they are because they can't say what they want to say. That to me connects also to the, you know, this frightening statistic, the hundred thousand people died of drug overdoses in the United States last year. And right. This goes beyond COVID, and we were living in a time in which uh, there's a lot of preventable death out there, mm -hmm. and and it does bring up 
contexts like the one you're describing. People yeah. either feeling that some shame in themselves or that within their own family or in society, they're going to be heavily scrutinized and shamed yeah. because of wanting to grieve for someone. I'm really glad you're giving that a space for that. It's, it's really important. Have you had people try to comment and, and they can't? No, actually. Um, uh, anything that comes to the site that does not get immediately published, I, I look at it from the back end of WordPress. Mm. I read it, I mean, very occasionally, I may make a, like a very minor edit, like if somebody trashes a family member and I need to get rid of, you know, I'm not going to get into that on there. But other than taking out a name of a nursing home and just calling it nursing home, mm -hmm. I haven't, I have not had to deal with it. So, but I think part of that is that everything is, you know, monitored. You can't just hit publish. I have to hit publish. It's, it's something that Alex Goldstein, who does Faces of COVID, has told me, though, too. I mean, he, and he has yeah. a Twitter following of 150,000 people. And he right. doesn't get, he doesn't get much hope I'm not jinxing him, but he doesn't get much backlash. He doesn't get trashed. He's created yeah. something that has a sort of a community protective bubble around it, I think, to a certain degree. And he publishes, mm -hmm. he doesn't ask people if they're Republican or Democrat. I mean, he puts the obituaries up there and lets them go yeah. out and do the work they need to do. But I guess my, my point there is that maybe we've, there's some uh, uh, creating these kind of spaces that allow for people to grieve and not worry that they're going to face some intense cultural backlash yeah. is, is really important. Yeah. And that is a big problem on Facebook. I mean, that, that has not gone away. That, you know, that fear of saying something about your loved one and then getting that kind of vitriol back at you. It exists. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not every story requires uh, somebody to <laughs> pop off their political opinion about it. <laughs> Maybe right. I'm, showing my my uh, uh the fact that i'm from the 20th century on that but um that's how i that's how i feel about it yeah. so um what's next for these projects just as we're closing out are you uh committed to these uh, for the foreseeable future is there some point at which you will say okay we the mourning the grieving is we're moving into a new phase i'm asking this partially as a completely selfish question because i'm trying to ask how long I'll do COVID calls. I keep asking myself this question. Yeah. I don't have a good answer. Well, two things. Uh, I don't want the sites to go away because I believe the stories need to be there. So I, I am seeking, you know, we'll be seeking funding for them so that that can stay. I think that a person should be able to post a memory, another memory a year from now when something occurs to them it's not like a one, you don't get just one chance on the website. If maybe another family member wants to say something else, um, people have asked me that, like, can it, you know, can I do this twice? And I'm like, please do. Mm -hmm. So I want the sites to stay there. And in addition, I'm actively searching for, you know, a publication for an anthology of these. I believe they need to be in a book. I believe somebody needs to be able to pick it up and say, I wrote this about my grandfather and have that sense of accomplishment. There are some other anthologies that have come out, but they're by like writers with a capital W and it's about like their time during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't, I don't think we're, you know, that's fine, but that's not all there should be. It should be stories 
by these people about the people who they lost. And it should be in a book or books. Right. So that's editors, my <laughs> editors listening, uh, looking for great projects. Please uh, go check out who we lost and who we lost Kentucky. And I can't, I don't think you'll have to wait long. Um, and then you'll have, then you'll have more to work on. I would be delighted to have that work, Scott. So, mm. yeah. So I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And today is, uh, since I'm in your tomorrow, I'm in Wednesday in, in Korea. It's a two-a-day COVID calls day for me. I've got uh, environmental historian Dolly Jorgensen at 5.30 p.m. Korea time, 3.30 a.m. Eastern time. For those who don't sleep well, please join my conversation with Dolly Jorgensen a little bit later today. And I would just want to thank Martha Greenwald, the creator of Who We Lost, um, Thanks for this work. Thanks for reading poetry today and for this just illuminating conversation. And um, hope we get you back sometime next year to talk about more of this and share more of these. It's just uh, really important work. Thanks, Martha. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for recognizing it. I'm very appreciative. Thank you. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. <laughs>